You are listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. We exist to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at vintagechurch.net. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching. What's up, church? How's everybody? Yeah. Let's, let's get after it. All right, is that cool with everybody? No frills, no funny stories. No, let's just dive into the word. Come on. That's why you came here. You came so that God would change your life today, right? Yeah. You didn't come here just because you live in the Bible Belt and this is what we do. Your car just automatically comes to church. You, you didn't come here just because, like, you'd feel guilty if you didn't, that you're afraid that you miss one Sunday and you're going to go to hell because some preacher told you that. You came here, I hope, because you know that you need to be here. You need to be in this room with these people and hear from your Heavenly Father a word that can change your life radically forevermore. Come on. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. If you're ready for the word of God, say amen. Amen. Matthew 20, 16. Jesus says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And all of God's people said, huh? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is one of several statements that we see in Scripture that are paradoxes. And if you don't know what a paradox is, let me, let me give you just a simple definition. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So who who just learned something right there? We can just go home. Y'all had a lesson right there. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. I would say that that verse in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last, definitely fits under that label, wouldn't you? Glad three of y'all with me. It's awesome. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Like, all throughout Scripture, we see verses like this. Have you ever noticed that? Verses that say things that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. They seem to be almost somewhat contradictory to one another. And those verses, in my opinion, are the easiest to overlook and the easiest to misunderstand. Because when we read... We just, especially those of us who kind of grew up in the faith, we just kind of accept and be like, oh, okay, cool, let's keep moving. And we never really take the time to dig into these statements. Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of just chew through these paradoxes in Scripture and kind of just see if we can figure out, all right, what is God trying to teach us? What does he really want us to do with verses like this? And this is the first one, Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, the first shall be last and the last will be first. Well, the key to understanding this verse is context. When it comes to Scripture, when it comes to life, context is everything, is it not? Have you ever taken something out of context? You've done it. You've heard a conversation out of context. You thought, she is a gossipy, crazy person. What is wrong with her? Because you heard one sentence, and you jumped to a conclusion about her based on that one sentence. Come on, amen. See, y'all don't want to say amen because you're like, I can't, no, uh-uh. Yeah, you've done it. You've done it. And communication is is a weird thing in our culture already anyway, right? And I think one of the biggest problems with communication in our culture is nothing is ever said like in person anymore. Like everything is over text. And it is impossible 
to read. Like, have you ever read a text and like you spent 45 minutes thinking, what does I don't care really mean? Is it I don't care or is it I don't care? Come on. Like, like you, there's a difference between I don't care and I don't care. There's a difference. Context is everything. And for us to really understand what Jesus just said, so the first will be last and the last will be first, we got to see it in context. Because I've, I'll be honest with you, I've heard a lot of people, if I just said, what does that verse mean? Just solely based, isolated on that verse, I don't think we can get it right. Because I've even heard people, like I even did a little poll this week. I, like as I, and, and God kind of changed the direction of this sermon. I planned to preach something else, and when the Holy Spirit takes over, you just follow his lead. Amen? Amen. And I've asked other people, what do you mean by that verse? And, and not, not to put anybody down, but none of them knew. They thought they knew, but they didn't know. Because what tends to happen is we almost tend to demonize the one who finishes first and nobleize the one who finishes last. As if Jesus is saying, those who desire to finish first are going to end up last, and those who desire to finish last are going to end up first. And I would submit to you, that's not what Jesus is saying in this context. Now, I know there's another place where Jesus talks about humbled and exalted. Those who want to humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humble. But that's a different saying, different context, different conversation. Or we read this almost like somehow Jesus is saying those, see, and most of us subscribe to um, 1 Ricky Bobby, chapter 1, verse 1. If you ain't first, you're last. And so we got to get beyond that in order to understand what this scripture is actually trying to say. But that's, I think that's the, that's the conclusion that most of us jump to. As somehow Jesus is trying to tell us that he somehow favors those who are last over those who are first. And if you don't get this scripture, if you don't get this verse in the context of the conversation in which it's being had, you'll miss it. Because it will lead you to almost a sense of Jesus is, is leaning towards some type of favoritism. And I would submit to you that when you see it in the context of the conversation, it's the exact opposite that Jesus is trying to articulate in this passage. And so for us to understand with this whole, the first will be last and the last will be first, we have to look at it in its greater context. So grab your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Because when you see that Jesus actually says this statement twice in, in one conversation recorded in the book of Matthew, and it sandwiches, it sandwich, between it is a parable that Jesus teaches us that really is confusing if you don't understand what he's talking about. But Jesus makes this statement, the first will be last and the last will be first, on the heels of a question asked by Peter, followed by a conversation that Peter witnessed Jesus have with a guy we know as the rich young ruler. See, there's this guy. We don't know a whole lot about him. We don't know his net worth. We don't know his name. We don't know much about him. The Bible describes, it, describes him as like a rich young ruler or a rich young man. And he's a guy that comes to Jesus and he has one good question, and he asks it in verse 16 of chapter 19. It says, just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What a question, amen? It says, Jesus, what do I need to do to get eternal life? It's interesting that a man who's described as very worldly wealthy still knows that there's something missing. 
that despite all the worldly wealth and possessions he had obtained, he knew that there was going to come a moment when he was going to cross out of this life into the next, and all that stuff that he had gathered wasn't going with him. Maybe a good lesson for our culture too, amen? He knew something was different. He knew something was missing. And despite all the things, all the things that he had done, all the riches that he had acquired, he knew that there was still a hole in his heart. And I think every human knows this. You are built, the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of man, that you are more than flesh and bones and blood meant for this world, that someday you will die, and that is not the end, that there is, is, is something else that God has planned for us that he has made possible in the person of Jesus. Come on, I'm preaching. Come on, amen. Come on, let's go, people. He said, what must I do to get eternal life? And it's interesting. Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. And then the rich young ruler says, which ones? Now, here's what I wonder. Like, wouldn't you like to be like, right, God, which ones I got to keep? Keep, all, keep the commandments. Which ones? What a weird question. As Jesus is going to be like, whichever ones you want. Like, you pick the ones that are easiest, you do those, and you'll go to heaven. Some of y'all are living like, with a God like that. I've never noticed that until recently. Like, uh, which ones? Like, Jesus was going to be like, like, all of them, moron. Like, that's all. <laughs> which ones? And Jesus goes through and he says, you know, this and this and this. And he says, Jesus, all those I've kept, all those I've done. In other words, I've, follow, I've, I've pursued, I've obtained all the riches, and I've followed all the rules, but something's still missing. Isn't that a good lesson to learn? That you can acquire all the riches and follow all the rules, but outside of Jesus, something will still be missing. Something will still be missing. And then Jesus says to him, I tell you what, go sell all, all your possessions and then come follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sad because he had great wealth and he couldn't do it. Now, we've manipulated that scripture in the wrong way too. You know what I'm saying? Like as, you know, as in like basically we can't follow Jesus and have anything. Like, Jesus doesn't want, it's not that Jesus doesn't want you to have things. Jesus doesn't want things to have you. And basically, Jesus knew that the wealth that this man had acquired would always serve as an obstacle to Jesus' rightful place in his life. And so Jesus said, before you can follow me, you're going to have to remove the things that are going to constantly be in tension of you really following me. And until they're gone where you can follow me fully, that's always going to be a problem. So be careful what you're allowing to compete with Jesus for his rightful place in your heart because he just might ask you to lay it down and walk away from it. So don't misunderstand the scripture. This was, this was isolated to this conversation and this man, but then Jesus says something interesting because this man leaves and then he, this conversation with his disciples follows. And he looks his, now, the, now, now just picture it in your mind, the rich young ruler has gone and now Jesus is here with his disciples and he looks at them and says, guys, let me tell you something. It will be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Like it's, if you let stuff be your master, if you let things begin to compete with Jesus' rightful place in your heart, it is going to be so difficult for you to ever follow him the way he wants you to follow him, which may be why we see in America and our culture so difficult for people to fully surrender to Jesus. Because we're way richer than we want to admit, and we let it get in the way. And the disciples are perplexed. 
And they said, well, how is anybody going to be able to do this? Because everybody's always going to have something that's competing with, with God for their heart. Like, how is this ever going to be possible? And Jesus says, like, by yourself, it's impossible. But with God, all things will be possible. And then here comes my man Peter. And he says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Well, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Okay, now, I hear the arrogance of this as Peter says it. Well, we've left everything. So if all those people that didn't leave anything, we've left everything. What's there going to be for us, Jesus? Because we're going to deserve a lot. Remember that? You remember you said, come follow me, and we laid our nets down, and, and, and we followed you. We were willing to do what the rich young ruler didn't. So you know what? We're great. And so what we get to have, it must, it's going to be, it must be more better than anybody else's. Like, what are we going to get, Jesus? Because, I mean, like, if, if it was impossible for the rich people to get something, like, we broke, man. We, Judas is stealing all the money. We ain't got sandwiches, nothing. We got to eat little boys' lunch, and it's crazy. You got to feed 5,000 just for us to get a meal. And then this is what Jesus says. Verse 28. You with me? Say amen. Because, see, isn't it funny how we think the, more we, the greater we sacrifice, the more we're entitled? The, like, Jesus, we're going we're, we're gonna to sacrifice so much. Since our sacrifice is going to be so great, we should be entitled to a lot. And some of us are living with Jesus that way. You think because of all that you're sacrificing for Jesus that you're entitled to so much more from Jesus because of that getting real in here today. Verse 28. said, so Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, and who? Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Do you think Jesus reminded that everything that you've sacrificed in pursuit of Jesus in this life will be returned to you in the next? Verse 30. And then, for the first time, he says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And now you probably see your Bibles where that ends the chapter. But that does not end the conversation. You realize when, when these letters and when these things were being written down by the people that God inspired to write them down, there were no chapters and no verses. Like those were put in later for our reference to be able to get back. And I would say, I would almost submit that that break in the chapter is, is a little inconvenient because Jesus is continuing in this conversation following Peter's question. That Peter says, all right, if this rich young ruler wasn't willing to leave anything behind and we're willing to leave everything behind, what is, what is going to be our reward? What, is, what are we going to be entitled to? What are we going to have the right to since we've chosen to follow you? And that leads Jesus into this conversation. And it begins with that and comes to this statement, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But then he gives this parable that you got to keep reading in order to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. Pick up with chapter 20, verse 1. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. 
he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Verse 7. Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So Jesus is telling this story. And for us, it's not, it doesn't resonate quite as much because it, it doesn't seem as relevant. But you've got to understand, in this culture and to the disciples, this would have made sense. Because landowners, this would have been a common practice where every day they would have went out to a certain central location to find day laborers. People that would come and help them work their crops, their fields for the day. And most often how it would happen, they would go out first thing in the morning. And they would hire workers to come and work for the day. And then they wouldn't come back. Whoever was left there and didn't get an opportunity to work, didn't get an opportunity to earn the wage, they were just stuck. But this landowner seems a little bit different. It says he went out early in the morning and he found laborers and he, uh, he said, this is what I will pay you for a day's work. But then he went back. And he went back. And he went back. And what's funny is most landowners wouldn't have gone back because the people that would have been left would have probably most likely been people that had a reputation for not being good workers. That's why they weren't there. That's why they were still there and why they weren't working. But this landowner keeps going back. And even though it's later in the day and even though these laborers may be a little less skilled, he continues to offer them an opportunity to work his fields. And then evening comes. Verse 8. It says, when evening came, the landowner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. So it comes time, it's payday. It's time to punch out and get paid. Like y'all on Friday, woo! And it says that, like Jesus says, all right, the ones who were hired last, the ones that have worked the least amount of time, come, let's pay them first, and in order, we'll pay the last ones, and then we'll pay all the way down to the first one. And I can just imagine that those people that were in the back of the line who were hired first, and they watched those workers who came late getting paid, and they were getting a denarius, they probably thought, dude, we about to be rich. Because I just saw the dude that came at 5 o'clock, and he only worked an hour, and the landowner gave him a denarius. If that's what he got, can you imagine what we about to get? Like, we having fun this weekend, drinks on me. Too many church people in here, nobody laughed. Come on. All right, reset. But then something happens. He gets, the, the guys that were the hired first get there, and they, he gets handed the same amount of money that the guy who only worked an hour received. Now, if this is in Randolph County, somebody's fighting. 
right? I mean, it's, they're burning the joint down. I mean, I work. Can you imagine? Can you imagine going to your job and you work 70 hours this week and the dude or the lady who worked two hours got paid the same wage as you? In our economy, that does not make sense. But kingdom economy is very different than our economy. So look what happens. It says in verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Doesn't seem fair. Since they, you have hired the last work. What? They, you have paid them equal. The ones who came in at five. Maybe, maybe there's been a mistake. Maybe you didn't realize, like, we worked all day. Like, through lunch when the sun was at its peak and it was scorching hot and we were sweating to death. And that dude that you gave the same amount of money you just gave me, he came at five. And he only worked an hour. And y'all gave, a, you gave us the same thing. Like, like. I don't understand this. Verse 13. But he, the landowner, answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. He said, you know how I know I'm not being unfair? I'm giving you exactly what I promised you. I'm giving you exactly what I promised you. See, unfair would mean for me to give you something I didn't promise you, something less than I promised you. I'm giving you exactly what I told you I would give you. If I, and then it says, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. So why are you doing this, landowner? Because I want to. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money. Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, let's go home. You got it, right? See, Jesus is trying to teach something really important, and the audience that he's trying to teach it to was most important of all to learn the lesson that he's trying to communicate. Because you see what just happened? Those who come first receive the same as those who come last. And those who come last receive the same as those who come first. Can I tell you what Jesus is trying to say here? That no matter when you enter the kingdom, you are afforded the same rights as the rest of the residents. There's beauty in that. That no matter when you enter the kingdom, you are given the same rights as the rest of the residents. Like Jesus is trying to teach him, them something about eternal life and salvation. Because this is all on the heels of that rich young ruler saying, how do I get to eternal life? Because I've, I've got all the riches and I've followed all the rules, but I still know something is missing. And Peter says, you know what, there must be something great for us because we were the first. 
And because we were the first, unlike the rich young ruler, God, we were willing to sacrifice. We were willing to lay it down. We were willing to pursue you. So there's got to be something greater for us than anybody else. And what Jesus is trying to say is, no, Peter, the same eternal life that I'm offering you is the same eternal life that through you I'm going to offer to others after I rise and send back to heaven and the ministry of the gospel is left in your hands. And do you see how important it was that disciples understood this? Because it would have been really easy for them to screw this whole thing up had they not. Can you imagine on the day of Pentecost? We have a gospel for you, but just so you know, the one we have is better than the one we're about to preach you. Because we were first. Like, y'all, y'all get to have Jesus too, but don't you forget, we had Jesus first. So we, we, we actually, we're, we're more better than you. Not very attractive offer, is it? How important it was. And see, man, this is, this is a concept that was totally wrecking their culture. Because they were in a culture that the first was always entitled to more. Think about even the hierarchy of the family. The firstborn son always had more rights than any of the other children. And so they always believed that those who came first were entitled to something more. And what Jesus is trying to say is, it doesn't matter when you come to me. When you come, you get the same offer of salvation and eternal life as they did. Do you see the beauty in that? And the importance that they get that right. And maybe one of the things that is breaking the church in our culture is because somewhere along the way within the church, we think because we've been walking with Jesus longer or because we got 17 King James Bibles and they got one NIV or because I look like this or because I've been doing this or because we have, like somehow we've built this spiritual superiority complex that's diluting the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to teach his disciples so that it would be avoided and the gospel would move forward and people would find hope. And I don't know that Peter would, le- would really learn this until Acts chapter 10. Because see, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 10, Jesus has been crucified, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's given the disciples the mission of inspiring people to live in love like Jesus. The day of Pentecost has come and the Spirit has moved on them and the movement of God is beginning to spread throughout the nation. And Jesus tried to let them know that he was different. See, a lot of people in Jesus' day missed out on Jesus because they thought Jesus would come in a different form. Most people in the nation of Israel thought the Messiah was coming to restore the nation of Israel as, as a kingdom on earth, as a political power, and that the Messiah would come, rescue the nation of Israel from Rome, and reestablish it as God's chosen people, and they would take reign. You following me? And so they kind of kept to themselves, and they tried to contain the gospel to themselves. Well, then the, the day of Pentecost happens, and it's interesting that on the day the church is born is the day of Pentecost, where people begin to just speak, and all these people from all different walks of life hear the, the, really the first post-ascension gospel message preached by Peter. And it's amazing to me that the day the church is born is people of all nationalities, all colors, and all languages, reminding us that when Jesus established the church, he meant for it to be a diverse place where everybody was welcomed and loved. But then Peter gets 
what Jesus taught him in Matthew 20 tested in Acts chapter 10. Because through a series of visions, Peter's called to go talk to a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius could not have been more different than Peter. Peter was a hardworking fisherman. Basically, Cornelius was essentially a Roman noble. Peter would have thought he was highfalutin for him. And God comes to him and says, hey, you're going to go, and you're going to go witness to this man. You're going to go share the gospel of this man named Cornelius, and whatever he puts in front of you, you eat it. And he's like, no, God, I can't eat that. I've never eaten anything unclean. Isn't it funny how we try to tell God what we're going to do and what we ain't going to do? He says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And Peter now has to go and share the gospel with somebody who's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. Somebody who has not grown. And you know, it's funny. There's this big argument in, in Acts as the church begins to spread. And people who weren't Jewish become, you know, start to follow Jesus. And there's this big debate among the disciples. Like, do they have to convert to, to Judaism? Do they have to be Jewish and then Christian? Like, you got to go through the steps. So you got to go through all the actions of Judaism. So, and that included circumcision. So you can imagine 30 years old getting saved. And they say, you got to be circumcised before you can get baptized. I'm out. <laughs> They have this conversation, and he goes in, and Peter walks, and he struggles with this, and he walks into this man's house, and this guy that couldn't be more different from Peter actually falls at Peter's feet because he's heard of Peter's reputation, and he's just in awe of who Peter is. And look at, you can hear the difference of the change in Peter in that moment because Peter says, dude, stand up. I'm just a man. You know what he's saying? I'm no different than you are. You think Peter would have said that had Jesus not taught him what he taught him in Matthew 20? He said, yeah, you deserved about my feet because I, I, I was with Jesus when nobody else was with Jesus. And now you're trying to come to Jesus? Jump through the hoops. We sit there, but have we, haven't we done that, church? Oh, you can come be a part of our community once you start dressing a little bit different, listening to some different things, talking about some different ways, like once you kind of clean yourself up, then you're going to be welcome in our community. He says, dude, you're no different than me. And look what he says after he shares his faith. And then Peter began to speak. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter says, I get it now. See, if the first are last and the last are first, do you understand that, that means that everybody finishes in the same place? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because reality is, no one earns it. No one deserves it but anyone can receive it. No one earns it. No one deserves it. But anyone can receive it. The rich young ruler said, how do I get eternal life? I've pursued all the riches and I've followed all the rules and I still haven't gotten there. You know why, young man? Because no one earns it. No one deserves it, but anyone can receive it. Let me tell you, the salvation that God offers, he offers to everyone. And let me tell you something. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough kind things. You can't come to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't 
stop cussing long enough. You can't, you, like, you can't, all these things, that's not what's going to save your soul. You're never going to deserve it. All the things that you and I have done, we're never going to deserve for God to give us what he's promised. But anyone can receive it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized in Christ, into Christ, haven't Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor black, nor white, nor rich, nor poor, nor young, nor old. No, all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let me keep going. Romans 5.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It doesn't matter when you enter the kingdom. You get the same rights as the rest of the residents. Amen. Amen. Everybody knows John 3.16, but have you ever really paid attention to John 3.15? It says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Aren't you grateful for that? That means it doesn't matter if you accepted Jesus five seconds ago or 55 years ago. You have the same right to the eternal life that he offers into salvation. And church, we can't lose sight of this because it's our job to take that message out to that world when we leave here every single week. So today I thought it would be appropriate that we would finish this service taking communion together. Because see, that's the thing that the only thing that gives us right to citizenship in heaven is the body and blood of Jesus Christ shed for your salvation. And I don't know if you're here today. Maybe you're here today, and today is going to be the first time you take communion as a kingdom resident because you're going to give your heart and life to him right now simply by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Or maybe, you know what, you made that decision years ago and you need to be reminded that that body and blood that you're about to take was shed for every single person who would ever live on this planet. And you're no more entitled to that sacrifice than anybody else. So I'm going to ask some of our host team. They're going to be around the perimeter of the room with baskets holding communion elements. If you did not get communion elements when you came in, if you would just step out of your seat, there'll be some, there's some folks standing in the back. They'll be ready to, to hold those baskets for you and allow you to get those. I'm going to ask the rest of you, if you would bow your heads, close your eyes with me, and I'm going to pray. Just allow this to be a sacred moment. If you need to get up from your seat and grab communion elements, I invite you to do that now. There will be people around the room 
to give you a chance to grab those elements. And however you feel led to partake, if you just want to sit in your seat and you'll peel the top layer off and take the wafer representing the body of our Lord and Savior and the juice representing the blood that he shed for you. If you want to come and kneel around the altar and spend some time in prayer or just sit quietly and reverently where you are to be reminded of the beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus poured out for your salvation and my salvation and for everyone who would choose to believe in his name. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He is lifted up so that everyone who believes might have eternal life. Father, I pray that as we take these elements now, that, Lord, you'd speak over this room. You'd help us just to praise your name for the free gift of salvation. That we would be reminded that you poured out your body for us purely, simply, because you loved us so much that you desired relationship with us. And, God, we're grateful that we get to be a part of the same kingdom that the disciples were a part of and that the people that we saw in the New Testament choose you. And God, I pray that today, if there's anybody in this room who hasn't put their faith and trust in that sacrifice, that they would do it before they leave this place. What must we do to eternal life? Put our hope and our trust in the one and only source of it, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And God, we just worship you today and we praise you for what you've done to allow us to have that right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Church Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at vintagechurch.net.